Good morning. My name is David. This is my son, Ian, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jonah. This is my dad, Atian. The New Testament is found in Romans 4, 20 through 25. Abraham didn't hesitate with a lack of faith in God's promise, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. But the scripture that says it was credited to him wasn't written only for Abraham's sake. It was written also for our sake because it is going to be credited to us too. It will be credited to those of us who have faith in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over because of our mistakes and he was raised to meet the requirements of righteousness for us. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Juliana. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 168 through 73. Bless the Lord God of Israel because he has come to help us and has delivered his people. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in his servant David's house, just as he said through the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. He has brought salvation from our enemies and from the power of all those who hate us. He has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant the solemn pledge he made to our ancestor Abraham. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you and as your people, as your sons and your daughters, and our hearts are open to hear what it is you have to say. We pray that by the power of your spirit that you'd open our ears and open our minds to understand you change and transform our hearts, that we might understand the blessings that you have for us in Christ, and that we might be able to go out and share those blessings with the world. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're absolutely delighted you're here. Uh, I forgot to say this in the first service, but uh, we want to particularly welcome any parents who are here visiting uh, their Air Force Academy students. This is Parents Weekend there, so we're delighted you're here and hope you guys are having a great weekend together. One of the, there's a, a number of things that baffle me about parenting. Um, I find myself continually confused about what to do and what to say and why we ended up in the place that we ended up in. But nothing probably baffles me more um, than when we have a conversation like this at snack time, where it's time for snack and the kids are saying, hey, I'm hungry, I'd like a snack. And I'm like, okay, you can have some applesauce or yogurt, which they've had for snack time 157 times before. And suddenly, they've decided that they hate applesauce and yogurt, have never liked applesauce or yogurt, have never eaten them at any point in their life, and certainly do not want them here and now. How dare you, Father, for even suggesting that we have liked them in the past? There's something that just suddenly shifts and changes, and they've changed their mind about what it is they like. And as frustrating as that is, I have to recognize that their sense of fickleness or what might be a a non-committal sort of movement toward food is actually not just something that kids struggle with. But we actually live in a society that actually is very much kind of a fickle, non-committal, change-our-mind kind of society. I think that was crystallized for us when Facebook added a maybe button to the RSVP options for an event that's hosted. And it's now become prevalent. Any sort of social media or digital communication that we have that's sending out an invitation to an event has this maybe or possibly button that we can give to that event. It's our way of saying, yeah, we might come. I don't really want to commit to your you know, kid's birthday party or your wedding right now because there may be another option that comes up in the future that I may like to take instead. So I'm just going to do Maybe. I can only imagine what my grandmother or great-grandmother would say. So like writing maybe on an RSVP to a formal or to official event. But we've kind of moved into this space in our culture where we find that to be kind of our general disposition, that we are tentative to commit to something and like the idea or the freedom of changing kind of our mind whenever we want to along the way. I can only imagine, though, what would it be like if God was like this? What if God was a maybe kind of God? That he said, yeah, 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 maybe we'll do this, but, you know, I might change my mind. What would that tell us about God? What kind of character of a God would be like that? And would we be able to trust that God's promises if we found that God was fickle in that way, that he changed his mind, changed his plan, decided last minute to go in a different direction because it seemed to suit him better. This is the exact kind of thing that Paul's actually trying to address in this next portion of the letter that we're reading through the book of Romans. So this is our fourth week in this series. Uh, we're walking through the entire book that Paul, the entire letter that Paul wrote to this church in Rome. And here's kind of where we're at so far and walking through the letter. If we're to summarize what we said the last couple of weeks, the major thing that we've talked about has been that there is presented at the very beginning of Romans the idea of a problem. And the problem is that there is a universal sinfulness or brokenness amongst humanity. That all people 
both Jews and Gentiles, those who have the law and are circumcised, those who don't have the law and aren't circumcised, everybody has sinned and fallen short of of the glory of God. And that sin really sort of works itself out as like an infection that goes and infects all of humanity and creates inside of us a sense of brokenness. That sin really works itself against the grain of the universe, against God's good and creative design for us and for the rest of creation. And sin causes a fracturing, a splintering, some sort of deformation of all of life, including ourselves. And this is full throughout all of humanity. That it's not just Gentiles who've sinned, it's not just Jews who've sinned, it's everybody the disease has spread brokenness is everywhere. And then lastly, we began to talk about, though, what the solution is to that, that God has sent the good news, the gospel, is that the solution is the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus comes as the one who's not infected, who's not broken, the Son of God made man and comes and lives a faithful life in order to restart, in order to redeem and restore all of humanity. Jesus has proven himself faithful to all that it is that God set up for him. And this is the good news that in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God is putting the whole world back together again. This is the solution. So the result of that is that we see in the book of Romans is that everyone who has faith in Christ, everyone who believes that who Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came and he did the things that he did. Everyone who has faith in Christ participates in this restoration project of God. Everyone who has faith in Christ is being put back together again. The brokenness is being repaired. The infection is being pushed out. We're being redeemed and restored into the image and likeness of Jesus that we might participate with God's ongoing work in the world. This is what we've talked about so far. But at this point, what we find Paul beginning to do is Paul begins to anticipate some objections to this. Throughout the letter, you'll see Paul like raising questions. And the questions are things that he's anticipating that his audience is going to ask and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul, what about this? And what Paul is anticipating and then therefore demonstrating this part of his letter is he wants to go back and demonstrate how the solution, how the gospel, how the good news about what God is doing in and through the person of Jesus actually fits with God's character and fulfills God's commitments. How it fits with God's character that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that God has actually fulfilled his promises to Abraham and Abraham's offspring in and through Jesus. Because if anything about this plan questions God's character or questions God's commitment, then how can we have faith in that God? How can we have faith in a God who's not the same, who's a maybe God? How can we have faith in a God who doesn't fulfill his promises that says, oh yeah, maybe I'll do that, but changes his mind later? So Paul goes in to say, no, 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 no. Listen, God is, his character is true, 
and his promises are kept in and through the person of Jesus. So that's what he looks at in the rest of this, or in, the, in this chapter, in Romans chapter 4, and actually a little bit in Romans chapter 3 as well. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be picking up kind of Romans 3.30 and working our way forward from there. But the first thing that Paul wants to demonstrate is this idea that the gospel fits God's character, that it fits within who God has revealed himself to be. Throughout the Old Testament, we find all sorts of descriptions of what God is like. The most commonly repeated one is that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love. This is the most common one, but the most prominent one, for, particularly for the Jewish community, if you were to say, hey, what verse in the Old Testament describes the very essence of what God is like. If you were to boil God's character down to one verse, what would that verse be? And it comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. It's this famous verse that's often referred to as the Shema. Shema means here. It's the first word in the verse in Hebrew. And it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. So Yahweh is our God. And then it says, The Lord alone... But in Hebrew, it actually is probably better translated, the Lord is one. That he is our God and the Lord is one. It's really a declaration of the singularity and the consistency of God. That for Israel, when they thought about who God has revealed himself to be, that he's revealed himself as one, as whole, as complete, and therefore he is full of integrity and is completely dependable and reliable. He is constant and he is true. Unlike the gods of the nations around them, God is one, and there is only one God, and we can fully rely on him because he is consistent and he is true. But if this is the basic sort of essence of God's character, then what Paul wants to answer is how does this relate to the gospel? Because in Paul's audience mind, if God is one, then there must be one plan for everyone. If God is one, then there must be one plan for everyone. There must be one way that he saves both Jews and Gentiles, both those who are circumcised and those who are not. He can't save one group one way and this group another way, and then sometime later decide to save a third group in a completely different way. If God is one, then there must be consistency about his plan. God can't save the Jews through the law and the Gentiles through faith. That would be inconsistent with a God who is one. But what Paul goes on to demonstrate is that God is actually the God of both and that he wants to save both. And from the very beginning, his plan has been to save them both the same way. That God's plan is true. And he says it this way. He says, since God is one, this is his reference back to Deuteronomy, then the one who makes the circumcised, then the one who makes the circumcised righteous by faith will also make the one who isn't circumcised righteous through faith. He makes the circumcised, the Jew, righteous by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentile, righteous by faith. So this idea of faith in the faithfulness of God is not a new idea. 
It's not a new way of God approaching humanity. God hasn't changed his mind or decided to switch strategies in how it is that he's going to redeem the world. He didn't say, oh, yeah, that law thing? Gosh, that didn't work out. (laughs) That was a total disaster. Let's try something different now and go this way and see if that works. Let's find something maybe a little bit easier for people uh, than keeping the law and decide we're going to save this way and then we'll kind of see how that washes out and if that doesn't work, we'll go a different way again. Then what Paul says is that God has always had one plan and Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. It's bringing that plan to its climax, to its conclusion. Jesus, God's work in and through Jesus is not a new strategy. It's the fulfillment of what he's been doing all along since Abraham. This is what God is doing. And Paul demonstrates that by going back to those passages, to Abraham, to the first Jew. And he says this. He says, what does the scripture say? He said, Abraham had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Paul mentions this verse four times in this chapter. This is huge for Paul. And he said, this is what God did with Abraham. He graciously invited him. He gave him grace, made promises to him. Abraham had faith in those promises, and that's what was counted to Abraham as righteous. That's what made him right with God. So how was it credited? When he was circumcised or when he wasn't circumcised? And it goes on, it says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that comes from faith. He had while he still wasn't circumcised. So when we look at Abraham's story, as we read in the children's sermon today, God, we saw the whole world had been wrecked by sin. Everything had been turned upside down and broken and shattered. And God set out to redeem and restore and repair everything that he'd made. And he did so by graciously reaching out to Abraham. Now, Abraham, whose name was Abraham at the time, was a 75-year-old uncircumcised pagan. He was not the Abraham that we normally think of. This is a guy who'd lived a very long life outside of God. A 75-year-old uncircumcised pagan. And God comes to him and he says, ask him to trust him. And he says to Abraham, hey, leave everything that you know and go to this new land where I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the entire world. In and through your family, I will begin to set everything right that has gone horribly wrong. But you've got to trust me and go. So at 75, this is what Abraham does. Then sometime between 75 and 86, maybe we find, pick up Abraham's story. He has no land and he has no kids. So 10 plus years have probably passed, no fulfillment on the promises, and Abraham's like, hey God, what's up? (laughs) Like this guy Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit my stuff. Like I still do not have any kids, what's going on? And then we see that beautiful story of God taking him outside and showing him the stars and telling him to count them and saying, hey, this is how many kids you are going to have. So Abraham had faith, he believed, he trusted as that story said, beyond what his eyes could see, that God would fulfill his promises, and it was counted to him, as reckoned to him as righteousness. Fast forward at least 10 more years. Abraham still has no land and no kids. 
He's now 99 years old. And God ratifies his promises, ratifies his covenant to Abraham, and Abraham circumcised. Abraham trusted God for nearly 25 years before he was ever circumcised. 24 years. And God considered him right years before he was circumcised because of his faith. Not because of his obedience to the law, but because of his faith. Circumcision was a sign and a seal that God had made him right, not by merit, not by what he did, not by keeping the law, not by being circumcised, but by faith. This is what it was. And he goes on and he says, and it happened this way so that Abraham could be the ancestor of all those people who aren't circumcised, who have faith in God, and so are counted as righteous. He could also be the ancestor of those circumcised people who aren't only circumcised, but also walk in the path of faith like our ancestor Abraham did while he wasn't circumcised. See, Paul is saying to this mixed group of Christians in the city of Rome, some who are Jewish and circumcised, some who are Gentile and uncircumcised, and he says to them, hey, guess what? I've got news for you all. You have the same daddy. You've come into this the exact same way. You've come into this family the same way. You might not look alike, You might not have the same stories. You might not have the same background. You might not have the same history, but you've come into this family the exact same way. When I was reading this, it reminded me of that 1980s movie, Twins. Anybody ever see that? So Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. So Arnold Schwarzenegger's, you know, like six foot nine, 280 pounds of like chiseled beauty. And Danny DeVito is his opposite, right? He's like four foot two and plays the penguin um, in Batman. So the, the exact opposite. And it turns out that they're actually twins. They don't look alike. They don't act alike. They had very different histories up until the point that they met, but they came into the world the same way. They came into the world through the same family. This is, I think, the theological version of that. And the metaphor breaks down the further you take it. Uh, but the idea is that the two groups have a common root. That God has always been about the same plan. And that plan is faith. Faith has always been the plan for everyone to get in on what it is that God is doing. He's graciously inviting everyone and everybody gets in on what God's doing the same way. Faith has always been the plan. Therefore, the gospel fits God's character. He's not divided. He's not changing his mind. He's not saying, eh, maybe, and then switching but he's being consistent and true. So secondly, the gospel fulfills God's commitments. The gospel fulfills God's commitments. When we look at the story of Abraham, God made him fundamentally three promises. He promised him kids, right? Kids who would actually become a great nation. And not just a great nation, but other passages say that you will be the father of many nations. The father of nations. This guy who's elderly and has no children, will become the father of nations. Second thing is he promised him land, right? The biggest sort of a description he gives it is from the Nile to the Euphrates, from Egypt to Iraq, for the entire known world of Abraham. He promises him the world, says your kids will inherit the entire 
earth. And then thirdly, he says, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. It'll be in you and through you, through your offspring, that I will actually repair the world. That this is my great plan of redemption is I'm going to make promises to you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you and through you, through your offspring, I will set everything right. When Abraham died, very few of these promises had come true. Abraham had one kid by, with Sarah. He had other kids in other ways, but he had one promised child. He owned one plot of land, a plot of land he bought in a business transaction with a bunch of Hittites in order to be able to bury Sarah in. That's the only property that he owns. One child, one plot of land. This was far from fathering nations and inheriting the world and putting the whole world back together. But this is the promises that God made to Abraham and to his offspring. And if God is faithful, then he must fulfill these promises. And so Paul picks up on this, and in verses like 17 through 24, he begins to layer in how God has fulfilled all of these promises in and through Jesus. See, Abraham has become the father of nations, both Jew and Gentile, because of what Jesus has done. That through faith in Jesus, all these nations are now included into Abraham's family. Abraham's descendants have inherited all of creation. They're sent out into all of the world. And we'll see that talked about more as the letter continues, particularly in Romans chapter 8. And then we see that Abraham's offspring, that through what God has done in through Jesus, this is, an op- this is now a part of God repairing the whole world. This wasn't just for Abraham that it was credited to righteousness, but for all who believe in Jesus. The whole world is being set right. See, Paul not only wants to demonstrate that God's plan with Jesus is consistent with his character, but it actually fulfills his promises that the promises that God had made to Abraham are being fulfilled in Jesus. Why does this matter? Because if they're not, how do we trust them? If God changes his mind or breaks his promises, how do we know for sure that he's going to do what it is that he's promised in and through Jesus? How do we know he's going to wrap this whole thing up when he does come again and set everything right? We know because we can look back throughout all of history and see how God has been consistent and he's been true and he has fulfilled his promises, maybe not in the way that Abraham initially expected, right? He waited 75 years for the first child, right? And years later before he got the first plot of land. But God is bringing all of this to completion in and through Jesus. He is trustworthy and he's true. So if the problem that God is trying to address is universal sinfulness or brokenness, and if the solution, the good news, is the faithfulness of Jesus that comes and brings about God's plan in the world, and that solution fits God's character and fulfills his commitments, then we said before is that the result is those who have faith in Christ will be put back together again. So the gospel not only fits God's character and fulfills his promises, the gospel bids us to believe. 
That's the invitation of the gospel, is to believe. But to believe what exactly? What is the gospel actually bidding us to believe? The text says that Abraham had faith, that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. But what exactly did Abraham believe? What was the substance or the essence, the real, like, kernel? What was the core of what it is that he believed? And Paul addresses this. He says this, So Abraham is our father in the eyes of God, in whom he had faith, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that don't exist into existence. Then he goes on, Without losing faith, Abraham, who was nearly a hundred years old, took into account his own body, which was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb, which was dead. And he didn't hesitate with lack of faith in God's promises, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's body was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. It reminds me of that scene. Any Monty Python fans in the room? That scene in this, uh, Monty Python, The Search for the Holy Grail, as they're bringing the cart around saying, bring out your dead. Like, whoever's dead, throw them in the cart. We're going to haul them outside of the city. And there's the guy who's saying, I'm not dead yet. I feel happy. I think I'll go for a walk. And he's you know, like, I'm not dead. Like, don't throw me away yet. I've still got time. It didn't go so well for him. Um, the, the metaphor again breaks down. But that's where Abraham was at. Everything was as good as dead in Abraham's life. That's the position that he found himself in. He was old. There was beyond hope that these promises could be fulfilled. The idea of him having a child stopped being possible a long time ago. It stopped being probable even longer than that. At this point, it was simply illogical and unreasonable. It was completely out of his control. There was nothing that he could do in order to bear a child with Sarah. He, neither Abraham nor Sarah were Benjamin Button. This was not turning backwards for them at all. There was no turning back the clock. There was no getting younger. Death was in sight. And there were no modern fertility treatments to be able to do anything about this. They were as good as dead. And Abraham said, well, well, wait, there's still time for God. There's still time. He was fully convinced that God had the power to fulfill his promises. Why? Because the very essence of Abraham's faith, the very core of his faith, was that Abraham believed that God gives life to the dead. It's fundamentally what he believed to be true about God. That God is the God who gives life to the dead. And therefore, nothing can, can, can keep him from fulfilling his promises. If he's the God who gives life to the dead, then anything is possible for him. 
If he's the God who gives life, gives life to the dead, then his power can overcome any form of evil or weakness or sin or destruction in the world. If he's the God who gives life to the dead, then there is always hope that he will fulfill his promises. And therefore, Abraham said, I'm going to believe that. I believe that this is fundamentally who God is. And the gospel actually bids us to believe the exact same thing. Bids us to believe the same thing. Look at this. Righteousness will be credited to those who have faith in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Righteousness being set right with God and one another and the world be credited to all of those who have faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Not only has faith always been the plan for everyone, but it's been the same kind of faith for everyone. It's faith in the same God who does the same thing, who brings life from the dead and therefore is able to fulfill his promises. The gospel bids us to believe just like Abraham did to have faith in the faithfulness of the God who brings life from the dead. And as Christians, we, of course, ultimately believe that God is bringing this about at the end of time, where whether we're still alive when Jesus returns or we've long passed, that Jesus will come again and he will actually resurrect our bodies. That we will experience a new life and a new body and a new creation because the God who raised Jesus from the dead is also going to raise us from the dead. This is the great hope of the Christian faith that we anchor ourselves to and say this is fundamentally what we believe to be true about God. It's been demonstrated in Jesus and what is true of Jesus will ultimately be true of us as well. But we also believe the God who is able to give life to us after we've died is able to give life to us now in the places that we're experiencing death. That if God is the God who brings life from the dead, not only will that be true in the future, but it's also true now. That God is actually taking the things inside of us, and the things in our life that are dying and dead, and he's bringing new life to them in and through the person of Jesus. So those places where we just see evil, God is actually somehow working in it to bring good. And those places where all we feel is nothing but hopelessness and despair and darkness, God's light is being shed in some way in and through Jesus in changing that whole situation. In places where we've experienced death, God is bringing about life. And sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes the way that he does it is just like he did with Abraham. 25 years later, before he began to even get a glimpse of the promises of God being come true in his life. And years and years later, before we experience the fullness of what it is that God's doing. But God is the God who gives life from the dead. And so this morning, you may find yourself experiencing death in some way. Maybe it's the death of a loved one, and that's sitting on you heavy this morning. Or maybe it's the death of a marriage, the death of a relationship, the death of a dream, the death of a job, the death of some hope that you were clinging on to that things would be different by now, but they're not quite. The death of some hope that has been buried deep inside of you for a really long time. Death in relationship where there's been betrayal, 
where things have been broken and shattered beyond what you ever dreamed would be possible. And you're experiencing that in the very essence of your soul today. The good news of the gospel is that the God that we serve is the God who brings life from the dead. And so whatever it is that you're experiencing, there is still hope in the midst of that situation. There's still opportunity for God to do things that you never thought or dreamed were possible or even imaginable. He's the God that not even death is big enough to keep him down. The God who wants to bring life into every situation and to bless us beyond what we can imagine so that our lives might be a signpost to the world of what God is actually like. That he is a resurrection God. And our prayer for you this morning is that it would come to the table, that you would experience God breathing new life into you in a way that fills you with hope and with the faith of Abraham. And for you, it may be that you've actually never expressed that faith before. You've never expressed faith, trust, belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's the father of Jesus. Today is a great day to say, yes, I do believe I do have faith that God raises from the dead and I want to entrust my life to him. And if that's you this morning, we just encourage you to pray, to receive the promises of God in your life and express them by coming to the table and saying, yes, I do believe that this is who Jesus is. That God is a God who is true to his character, he's true to his commitments, and he can bring life out of any situation. Let's pray.